Hello, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing late Sunday evening, May the 29th? David, I'm doing okay. It's been a weird time. We had another dust storm here. Uh, there was a huge local event, which I was very glad my neighbors encouraged me to get out and go see it downtown and uh, I needed to to get out I've been working hard on the guidebook and another writing project and getting a little scruffy I uh, been walking around in my swim trunks and a tank top and you know not shaving the big Lebowski style a little yeah. bit yeah you know it's just you know suddenly it gets to a point where you think oh I'm really having a, a real shower and just putting on you know a decent shirt and some underwear and shorts and sandals that seems like a big production but uh, I went out and I really enjoyed it uh, there were some beautiful beautiful vintage cars and the, the scene was just so mellow. There were families out, and uh, there was a huge barbecue showdown of amateurs, but a lot of professional barbecue trucks. And I really enjoyed all the people with dogs because the dogs are walking, you know, around going, "We just passed another barbecue truck," or, you know, <laughs> "We just passed another barbecue truck," you know. Are you realizing what this this is doing to me? And uh, so it was a really good vibe and such a, a break from my own head. But really, I, I think uh, what we can't avoid talking about, it, it was tremendously therapeutic break from uh, the media uh, and the reporting yeah. Yeah. of the last week. So that was my scene. Uh, and then a kind of quiet day to day. But uh, how has your weekend been? You know, it's been good. I think that I echo your sentiment of I'm doing okay uh, for largely the same reasons. I think that the the news as of late has been uh, just really, really tragic, really hard to uh, kind of come to terms with it's hard to come to to feeling like you you actually occupy the space that you're in i think after something like this happens um it hit me really hard i had uh, numerous dreams before this all happened um, which i told you i believe off mic but not on the show about dead children in fact uh leading up to this and uh, I think that that has sort of cast a, I don't know, I feel like the, the energy of everything is, is, is at a low point right now. However, on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's playing with Gus or hanging out with my family or, you know, um, working on my, my hobbies or my work or, or whatever, it's been it's been going just fine. I think that if I didn't have a hundred and three episodes of this show in the tank and a lot of personal work that I've done, I think this would have sent me into uh, some kind of spiral. You know, because it's just awful, right? There's no way to really sugarcoat what's going on right now. It's 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 a terrible thing. So. Uh, 
I continue to touch grass and, you know, do my best to engage with things that enliven and enrich life, but it's not easy. And I think we're going to address some of those things. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're in sync. We're in sync. Um, okay, well, you've got a new set of, of five words from uh, to choose two from. Do uh, mm-hmm. you want to give us a report on how you did last time? <laughs> I think I missed one because I was going over this in preparation for the show. And I think I got heteronormative. You did. Because I said non, non-heteronormative. I don't think I got the other ones, though. I think, I think this was one where I got one, but not two. I think that's exactly right. That was, that's my scorecard. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, I think... Yeah, last week, I was, just, I was just not on the ball, man. I don't know what was going on. I was so into that conversation, and it was like time stopped, and I, I, was, just, I was just vibing. And I, I didn't have the creative challenge, and I only had one of the two words. So, oh, well. But you've got the creative challenge follow-up for this time. This was the first time mm-hmm. that we allowed a real, uh, well, two goes, two bites at the cherry. I'll, I'll just remind yeah. listeners what the, what the proposition was. We went back to a storytelling uh, challenge of, uh, called Millennial Demic was sort of a working title conceptually where uh, David is, is coming at it from a first-person narrative voice point of view. He's an investigative reporter who is trying to connect some strange dots. Uh, we're dealing with the phenomenon of millennial-age people uh, either never having left home or returning to the family home. And our protagonist... David's first person voice realizes there are some strange deaths of the the parents all around the country, uh, not just in one area. It, it's it's more uh, disconnected than that, um, or more widespread, if you'd like. And he's going to tell us a story about how he connects those dots, the conclusions drawn. But that will come up at the end and. It's strangely sort of, uh, well, it's not, you know, exactly an echo of what has gone on this last week, but it's not entirely disconnected either. Um, There's a little bit of resonance there. So we look forward to that at the end of the the episode as usual, because you're... um, your responses are always so good, so I know that with a little bit of extra time, another week to think about this, you've got something in store for us that uh, will be worth the mm-hmm. delay. Mm-hmm. And I have a yeah, I think you're gonna like this one. Yeah, I have a, a, a really wicked one coming up for next time uh, to get you right back on pace. So there. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, excellent. Yes, I have my words uh, to choose two. I will get those in there somewhere. Um, none of those words, by the way, is by curious. Just throwing that out. There. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for this episode, which will be, uh, Chris and I have discussed this off mic, it will be a bit more freewheeling. 
Um, but there are, I think, some pretty heavy topics that we have to touch on this time. So do you want to turn it over? Do you want me to start or should I turn it over to you? Either way really is fine with me. Because Why don't you start, I could go some places. Why don't you kick it off? Okay. Okay, cool. Right. So um, this, uh, this mass shooting event that happened in Uvalde, Texas has got me thinking about several things that we talk about on this show a lot. Um, I think that you know, the past two, maybe three episodes, we've really touched on uh, this concept of sitting with difficult ideas. Um, sometimes two ideas that are um, at odds with each other in your head. And I think that there's really no better example of this than what has happened recently where a, a young man was somehow able to save up uh, approximately $4,000 to buy two AR-15s and hundreds of rounds of ammunition while working as a line cook at Wendy's and then take those guns to a school uh, unmolested by the police en route was able to go into that school, uh, proceed to kill 19 children and two teachers uh, while the police waited outside and, and really did nothing, right? The clear villain in all of this, and a point that, that's brought up that really needs to be addressed, I think, in, in a serious way. I, I don't like the talking points version of this, right? Um, the assault weapons debate, the gun debate, that's so rampant right now. How do you hold in your head the idea that this massacre was a tragedy that was absolutely, to my mind, without a doubt, facilitated by the ability for this mentally unstable young man to acquire these weapons with being a kind of staunch Second Amendment advocate as I am? How do how do you do that? I, I don't I don't I don't like the easy answers that either side has for this kind of thing, you know. Answers that are so easy, by the way, that people get mad at you if you don't subscribe to them, right? It's like how can you not see this? It's so clear, but it's really not that clear to me. So I just I guess I have um, I have another thought about Uvalde that involves. Uh, the response to it and the medium by which that response happens. But I think I'll put a pause for a second and lob the ball back to you. Um, how do you reckon that we, we, we hold these two things together? Well, I certainly uh, agree it's very, very, uh, very difficult. And I think that's why uh, we uh, individually and together and, and kind of all of America as a nation is uh, we're all struggling with it and, and we feel the strain of that over this week. There's also that the matter of the shooting in Buffalo uh, which uh, got completely sort of eclipsed and that ties in with an ongoing theme of ours of, of both cultural amnesia which seems to be extreme in this case, but also the nature of the media reporting. Um, I have problems on the Second Amendment front, uh, too. 
Um, I certainly have problems with the binary of uh, gun restrictions and uh, versus the mental health side of it. I think that dichotomy or opposition is has just proven to be completely unhelpful, and it does seem as if. Uh, you know, when these incidents happen, and they do, and we know another one is coming up, uh, I mean, the, the authorities are braced for copycat crimes. Uh, there's no reason why another incident won't happen. We're, we're kind of cultivating this. Um, so my thoughts turn on, on two sort of uh, possible angles of response. Uh, one is uh, the media management of these issues because I don't think we can remove the media the talking points so to speak uh, from the equation of the total response I just don't think that's possible because it's been an onslaught over this week and it's been everywhere it, it really has completely sucked all the oxygen out of, of the news um, so there's that and then I think there is the question of to what ex how are we cultivating uh, this problem, these these crises that that right. occur and recur and recur because we we seem to be it's an industry, it's almost an industry. There's a kind of weird, extremely perverse precision to it that uh, it's not just the the, the frustration and then the paralysis and kind of the impotence of of what we do after the fact it's well, why does this keep happening you know mm -hmm. are, are we yeah. just uh, and is it really as simple as well there's a lot of guns out there and there is a lot of mental health problems I mean that is you know kind of what a lot of people just end up saying you put those two together and you know this is mm -hmm. what you get right. but let me just differ I to go back to this sort of experience I had yesterday, because uh, I think a personal uh, psychological response might be more helpful than looking at the big picture media issues first. And I'm walking around this uh, you know, great civic event the wind was up, it was a little bit dusty, but it was still a really good day. These beautiful cars, people who are really, it, the vintage car scene is very mellow. They're, they really love what they do. They're really good at it. They're proud of what they do. Some of them are professionals and they make their money off it. Some are just real you know, fans and enthusiasts. Uh, you had couples and families and dogs and uh, a really great vibe. And as I was walking around, I felt, you know, this was so different than the world as in America as portrayed in the media. So different. And I kept thinking to myself, well, I just don't feel any fear in this crowd. I don't feel like something like that could happen. And I thought, yeah. that's a little weird because... Um, I honestly have a neighbor, I'm a little bit, uh, uh, the son, uh, he, he's not, he's back living with his parents, <laughs> and uh, he's clearly on the schizophrenic spectrum and had an incident and the police had to be called the, the other night. Nothing like what I was dealing with in my condo of criminal people, this is just a pure mental health thing, but it's a concern. And I mean, Vegas is only just 
you know, around the corner. And we still are the city with the most deadly mass shooting uh, in American history. Um, and there are many questions that linger about that incident, very disturbing questions that have never been resolved or addressed by any of the authorities or the media. Uh, and it's kind of faded out of, of, of memory, you know, because Vegas wants to get back to business. So I wondered sure. why walking around I had this powerful sense of good vibe, of getting out of my head, getting out of the media, not looking at these headlines. I and, have thoughts, but I'm interested in yours. I do have thoughts. You know, and I yeah. I wondered if, I mean, was I just being naive and, and idealistic and just no. needing a retreat? No. Or was I being really intuitively right? Uh, yes, yes. I think that a a car show could not be more apt of a description of of the cure, perhaps that we're all looking for. When you have you have people in car culture, this is a hobby that people have. Nobody's doing this to earn any kind of rewards. I'm sure that having a cool car will get you laid, <laughs> so that's probably a part of it too. <laughs> but at the end of the day, a lot of these guys, I'm sure, are you know kind of getting up there in age. They have a partner who they've been with forever. It's not really about the girls or the fame or even the money because they spend an ungodly amount of money on this hobby. But that is my new uh, sacred word, is hobby. Mm -hmm. We need hobbies so badly in this country. Nobody has any hobbies they have things that they do to kill time which if we look at that uh, by the way from a lake off perspective that's a very interesting uh sequence of words there kill time absolutely it is um hobbies are not ways to kill time they're ways to genuinely enjoy downtime which is different it's a completely different thing time expands when you are working on your car when you're detailing it when you're you know getting the paint right whatever um, that's a beautiful way to people. put it i think that's absolutely right yeah 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 i yeah i think i think that um throughout this conversation i want that idea to kind of hover over it as this idea this idea of of having hobbies of having things that have no real goal an infinite game there's this great book called finite and infinite games that's often used by tech companies and is really kind of uh, uh, blasphemed and perverted into uh, you know new ways to make people pay money forever right but the I the actual beautiful utopian idea of an infinite game i think really finds its home in the concept of the hobby and people need them right whether that's martial arts or learning dead languages or reading classics of russian literature or getting really good at juggling um, some of these things might seem frivolous but i want listeners to pause for a second and think if the frivolity isn't something that has been embedded in a culture that makes you believe that everything that you have to do has to have some kind of 
gravitas and, and, and importance, right? I mean, there are beautiful lives that you can live pursuing hobbies. And nobody at that car show, nobody at that car show is going to commit a mass shooting. Even if there's an argument at that car show, guns are not going to be pulled. Unless, of course, somebody, somebody tries to steal one of the cars, right? Um, other than that, it's, it's simply not going to happen. Because these people have something that they, that they truly love that dilates time for them uh, that, you know, uh, is worth doing. I think you've completely gotten on to the mood of the scene I mean, it was just this fabulous open-air picnic and demonstration of a shared hobby culture. My, my vibes that I took in were about order and structure and safety and fun. And I did frequently think to myself, I wish I had a hobby like this. I feel like all my weird reading and all the stuff going inside my head is just not not as healthy as these people. These people look happy. And right. the, the, the one little sort of wire of uncertainty, and I'm not quite sure what the right word, not anxiety, but maybe sadness. I did have a question in my mind of whether or not this kind of event, you know, a huge municipal picnic and vintage car show and you know bands on the bandstand playing for free and and doing covers of Neil Young and Leonard Skinner and stuff like that um, will that happen in 30 years time and I don't know about that I think that there's something generational here because you're right you know there's they most of the people are a certain age you know um, there's, there's a bit of variation but because there are a lot of cars but there is something that, that I, I wondered as I was walking through if, if will this kind of civic happiness and order and peacefulness you know in an essential sort of way is that replicating itself in younger people, and I, I just don't think it is, you know? Um, it's hard to say. It's, it's hard to generalize that, I think, because I went to Olive Garden today, and there were many families there who were enjoying a meal. The, the parking lot for the Quail Springs Mall here in Oklahoma City was packed with people who were out going shopping. All of these things, right? Whether it's chain restaurants or... Uh, you know, mall consumerism, uh, they're, they're not perfect and, you know, they're not necessarily an ideal, but they provide, I think, an adequate facsimile to the hobby, right? In, form, in the form of consumerism, right? And I think that the fact that there are still people who go to malls and who eat at Olive Garden speaks to this idea that there are people who just want pastimes that they can do with people who they care about right the key is getting them to take that next step 
to find the thing that uh, you know because because buying things and also you know succeeding in a career or whatever they're all a part of the same game right buying things is the you know sort of materialistic end game of having a successful career but the hobby is the thing that's supposed to be free from from all of that right um, and I, th I think that hopefully most of these people can take that next step and, and, and find something that's just really theirs I had a friend yeah this was before I graduated high school actually this would have been you know 10th or 11th grade but his uh, mother was really into Star Trek and they, they lived in absolute squalor they lived in the hood and their house was dirty and you know it had gross old takeout boxes on the tables it had that kind of sweet aroma of rot that, <laughs> but her house was full of you know these these kind of memorabilia star trek hummel plates right and uh that's again you know it's tied to this kind of you know franchise consumerist you know star trek whatever kind of thing but i, I think that people are they just have to be pushed a little bit towards like, what's your actual hobby? You know how many people in this world right now I think would be shocked to find out that the thing that brings them the most joy is Frisbee golf, you know? <laughs> well, just getting out into the sun and tossing a Frisbee at these little cages with their friends is, is actually the thing that gives their life some kind of meaning. Um, I just I don't think it's anything to uh, to scoff at, you know. I th I think it's the physicality that's really important and the activity mm -hmm. rather than the passivity. I, I think yeah, that that, uh, yeah. mm -hmm. that what I'm um, what I'm concerned about, I guess, and I uh, I have sort of two young men on my mind. I think because of of uh, the massacre, because uh, we are talking about sort of young men going wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. One of them is really just a great kid. He's, um, he's 15. He's, he's very, very tall for his age and not athletic at all, which I think is, is a bit of a problem. But his whole right. world is entirely involved in gaming. And he's mm -hmm. very articulate about it. He's got a really good brain. His parents are very, very bright. But, I mean, when I've seen him over the last couple of years, I just, my first thought is, son, you got to get outside, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. You've got to run around right. and do some things and not just use your mind in these narrow sort of uh, ways, but really get, and COVID, of course, made it very difficult for, for that age group particularly, um, and he's a little bit of an introvert to start with. You know, he's kind of, you know, he's a smart, nerdy, you know, video gaming kid. Mm -hmm. And that's what he wants to mm -hmm. do. He mm -hmm. wants to design video games. And I think he'll be great at it. Uh, but he doesn't have the ability to talk about anything else, which is a problem for smart kids and I think smart boys. You know, I mean, you and I were interested in, in a lot of different things. Art, books, music, film, you know. Uh, not nerds in that sort of way 
And the other thing is he's so far from that working with his hands of what the car people are doing. You know, I, I asked this one dude, he's, he's like my age, but, and he's good looking, you know, big mustache, huge muscle, obviously a bodybuilder too, but he looks so happy. And he had this just amazing 1955 stretch Cadillac convertible. And the thing was just, I mean, it was a mirror of this beautiful sort of uh, rich uh, maroon uh, color. I said, how many coats of paint? And he said, 22. And he smiled. He, you know, and it was like, a lot of people would freak out at that kind of detail because, you know, you've got all this beautiful chrome and everything. I mean, it's really painstakingly detailed. But he said that with such joy. And here he is, you know, if you saw him walking down the street, a lot of people would go, that guy is the epitome of macho. But no, he was the epitome of friendliness and cool and, and artiness in his own way, you know. I mean, he is an artist. That, that meets all of, of course, my criteria yeah. for art. And, I mean, it ties in, you know, back to, you know, when we were... Uh, reading uh, for the book club, Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing One Sees, Robert Irwin's, uh, you know, admiration for L.A. Latino car culture and the mm-hmm. devotion they put, you know, he, he thought, look, that's a legitimate folk art and high art in his mind. And so I think it's the physicality sort of thing that we may be missing in, in the yeah, next that's it. generation. This sort of insular, incel internet, you know, narrow focus of, well, God, I'd go insane too, you know? Right, right. And it's this kind of thing where we have taken, um, especially our our hobbies and our entertainment, and we've expected them to be, I really like that that, uh, sort of juxtaposition you did between active and passive, because I think that people... You know, think that their hobbies should be passive, but that's the exact opposite of what a hobby really should should be. You know, you think about this guy, and I'm just trying to picture talking to this guy, not about something that's that's awful, like this mass shooting that just happened, but you know, uh, an internet talking point, right? About uh, oh, I don't know, like trans bathrooms or something like that you know like like something that people online get really incensed about and you just have to assume that this guy would be like yeah i don't i don't really i don't know i don't have anything to say about that because i'm busy putting the 19th coat of paint out of 22 on this on this car you know and uh i think that Instead of that being viewed as something that could, you know, distract him from what's going on, you know, or, or, or keep him away from the bad things in life. I think that that actively supersedes these things that we're talking about, right? What he's doing is actually more important than engaging in that debate in any way, shape, or form. Well, it's interesting, uh, you know, I love how you focused on, on the idea of hobby and... We have very conflicted feelings about that. I, I remember there was a time when, you know, 
hobbies we were looked down on. They were sort of, yeah, you right. know, they were kind of bad arts and crafts. So everybody had them. Everybody had them, though, even though they were looked down on, whether they liked to admit or not. People had them, right? Well, certainly, I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, you know, assumed that, that sort of older people would have them, that you needed something to sort of keep your hands and mind occupied. There is also, of course, and this goes back with the etymology of hobby, of, uh, of the relationship to a toy. And, of course, then we have hobby horse. And people who are familiar with Tristram Shandy, Lawrence Stern's just fabulous 18th century novel, which it was, it was so postmodern, but, you know, far ahead of its time. Um, but a hobby horse in that sense is, you know, a, a kind of a pet peeve or a fixed idea, you know, an eccentric uh, kind of thing that you can... Uh, well, you, you, you can't get off of. You, you ride your little hobby horse around, you know. It's, but again, it's a kind of derogatory sort of meaning. But I think you've reinstated some real dignity and uh, some necessity to it in the sense of real enjoyment. And I love that idea about time expanding. I think that that's, um, that's very insightful. And, and people who are you know, well, in these worlds, that's what they say. Well, yeah, because what happens when, you, uh, when you're scrolling the timeline, when you're scrolling the feed, time disappears. It goes away. You look at your phone, you look up, it's been 15 minutes. But it's, it's also been, you know, kind of grossly contracted. And I've been reading a lot more lately. And I've just been amazed at how much how much book I can get through <laughs> and because of the nature of literature, how much life it can, you know, sort of seem how seem that I've lived and it's only been an hour and I'll think, well, fuck, yeah. I've just been through, you know, 10 years of this person's life and it's only been a fucking hour. That's a completely different mode than, than scrolling, which I wanted to get into scrolling if I could really quickly. Sure. Um, in relationship to this, uh, or in relation rather to this uh, mass shooting thing. So I had, uh, when this whole thing happened, a very good friend of mine uh, texted me that, you know, they were just going to kind of stay offline and that they needed some time. And I thought, okay, that that's cool. So I, I don't stay offline because unfortunately I am a kind of working creative person. And it's sort of this... Uh, devilish pact that we've all made where we have to post mm-hmm. or we disappear. Yep, right? I understand. So, yep. um, I hear you. So whenever this all happened, I, I refused to post about the mass shooting itself um, for reasons that I'll get into. But I was posting about something frivolous and, and, and not important, and uh, this, this same friend who apparently had snuck back onto social media tweeted at me like oh just shut up right this kind of um this kind of exasperation with the fact that i was still tweeting and you know when all this stuff is going on and two thoughts really popped up with me with regard to this the first one being that uh i feel like we've lost the ability to privately grieve for things that things have become so performative 
that if you don't publicly acknowledge them, it's as though you're somehow, I don't know, insulting them or cheapening them or whatever. And with the mass shooting, it got to the point where I was talking with my wife in private, not even online. And I I told her, I don't really... I don't really have anything to say because I want to stay with this grief, pain, and discomfort on my own and deal with it in my own way. And I think that the social media compels you to talk about things that you don't you don't necessarily have to talk about. I still don't really I still don't really want to get, you know, too deeply into how I I feel about all this outside of a sort of mystified, disgusted uh, sort of feeling. But that flows into this idea of posting things on social media because, of course, as soon as this kind of thing happens, you see see people posting their political talking points. But not just their political talking points. they, They talk about the incident itself. And... As innocent as that might seem, I think about the fact that when we're on social media, we're, we're bearing witness to a feed, a constant stream of content. And that objects like books or songs or films have almost ritualistic beginnings and endings. You know, you open a book, you close a book. The lights go down in a movie theater. The lights come up in a movie theater. A song fades in and a song fades out. But a feed just keeps going. And I think that something that people should keep in mind when it comes to mass tragedies like this is that no matter how sincere and heartfelt their feelings are about the tragedy of the moment, it's being juxtaposed against ads for Papa John's pizza and you know Twitter jokes. So you could have pictures of 11-year-olds who were slaughtered pressed up against a post that says, so you're telling me a shrimp fried this rice? <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think that the vulgarity and the pornographic nature of the feed should really give people pause before they post about these things. Because again, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not attributing any kind of social climbing clout or virtue signaling. Even if we're talking about posts that are genuinely expressing some form of grief. Marshall McLuhan said the medium is the message. And you're putting those thoughts into the porn machine. (laughs) Right. And uh, I don't know. I just really think that we should think twice before we do that. I, I, I just, I feel like this goes back to our talks about things that are sacred um, that's all I got to say about that. Well, let me take you upstream 
of that in causal terms. Okay. And yeah. then we'll go downstream in the sense of uh, a, a therapeutic, not curative, but a, a kind of response uh, that, that we can, or a strategic uh, approach that we can all adopt. And uh, I'm going to, I'm eager to get your response to it because I think it's something you'll have a, a, a you know, a, a really interesting perspective on. But... If we go upstream from social media in the sense of Twitter and Facebook and look at mainstream media, one of the things that I've gotten more and more interested in, uh, when I was in Africa, uh, there was a, a whole group of computational linguistic people, and uh, they were coming at it from conventional uh, linguistics, they were coming at it from serious AI, and through them, I've met more sort of AI people, uh, at least online. And there's a whole world going on there. Um, you and I both have, have had some experience of computer-generated versions of our writing. Uh, I'm a regular uh, follower of a very, very intense media analytics company, which is made available through friends. There's, there's a powerful new way of looking at things. And I remind people that very, very early in this series, we focused on Gregory Bateson, who anthropologist, clinical psychologist, phenomenally interesting career. One of his most important insights was the easier you can predict a message, the less information it contains. This is something that we're looking at and extending and expanding on in the guidebook that we're working on. We hope to have done well by the end of summer for sure. But I think that's a really important point. The easier you can predict a message, the less information it contains. Well, it's come to my attention and the, the data is really building up that when we're looking at mainstream media, MSNBC, NBC, ABC, The New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, NPR, Fox. And then we go down you know, a little, to another level of, say, Salon, Slate, Vox, Vice, Jezebel, Boing Boing. The AI perspective is not only is a, is a story like the massacre just completely overwhelming these media. We, we know that. It's a big story. But the phrasing, the language, the stories are actually repeating to a suspicious level that you can really only conclude there's a level of automation in that. I mean, mm. there's certainly metaphorically mm -hmm. a level of mm -hmm. automation that is just very, very disturbing. So that then passes down to the social media individual posting level. And we get less and less information with each post because the message gets more and more predictable. We get more reinforcement of the need to repost and restory the same information again and again and again. And right. that is where I think this... Uh, the idea of, of the, a sense of the pornographic nature that you're talking about comes from. 
I think that's where it starts really with the mainstream media, which has become epidemic in this regard. And I think we're going to see fewer and fewer real journalists. I think we're going to see more and more wire service stories, more repetition of phrasing that is just completely uh, transparent. It won't be even suspicious anymore. It'll just be straightforward. But here's my downstream idea, my question for you about how to maybe break out of that uh, ossification of predictability and mm-hmm. the, the pornographic nature of a story repeated and repeated and repeated. Um, it's when we focus on a personal situation and maybe on some sort of preventive measures. Because I think we're all feeling kind of paralyzed. You know, we don't think the gun debate's going to go anywhere. We're certainly, you know, pretty convinced there's no, not going to be more mental health services around. But I wonder what you would personally think about this. Because uh, another, I mentioned that the two young men were on my mind. Well, here's the second one. He's older. He's not quite your age. He's not quite 30. But he's not 21. And he would be, I think, pretty clearly diagnosed as manic depressive. He would certainly be diagnosed as ADHD. Uh, He's had some problems with drugs and alcohol, uh, a couple of DUI car accidents. Uh, I believe he's had a pretty, you know, intense involvement with pot and cocaine at different times. Uh, Not in a criminal, you know, dealing sense, just, you know, an addictive sense. Um, And I'm not sure where he is on those drugs now. He is a gun owner. he is definitely confused about his life career path. Uh, no clear plan taking form there. Works in the hospitality uh, industry. He has high energy, so he's you know he's good at that. But it's kind of all over the place. Uh, gun owner. Uh, and increasingly involved with extreme websites, dark web sort of world, uh, and quite honestly mouthing, or at least texting to family and friends, what friends you know remain, uh, a lot of anger, a lot of anger, uh, to the point where when I reviewed some of those messages, I thought, well, this is a red flag. I mean, how much more of a red flag do you need? And... But what do you do about it? So, I mean, what would you do in that situation? How do we treat that or, or, or meet that right. need without violating civil liberties, without overreacting, without making the problem worse? What do we do? Right, because what you're talking about is not wanting to minority report a person who is expressing all of these signs and symptoms but hasn't actually done anything yet. All of that is a real problem that in itself is a it's a really tricky one of when you intercede and when you don't but i do think that what i would do for a person who's in this kind of situation is i would recommend that they (laughs) it's gonna sound uh, maybe crazy to some listeners but i would recommend that they listen to certain podcasts because i think that i think that art is really something that can save people and by art i mean books movies music 
visual art performance. And I think that for most of my life, that art has been pretty expressly the realm of the left-wing person, because historically the left-wing person has at least perceived themselves to be the one whom society is is firmly placing the boot upon their face. Uh, although I think now it has decidedly shifted over to the right. So I think someone like this, if I had to guess, they're probably pretty active, as you said, on uh, on 4chan, right? Which is not necessarily dark web. Could be dark web, could be, could be uglier stuff than that, but at least some kind of... Uh, Keck, 4chan, Pepe style thing. Um, I would recommend that they listen to some stuff like Perfume Nationalist, right? Or I'm So Popular. Or some of these podcasts that really are able to kind of harness the dissident uh, right-wing energy and point people towards uh, hobbies that I think are really valuable like reading and um and film and things of that nature i think that a, a, a person like that just really has has become this sort of uh perpetual motion machine of uh ingesting bad vibes from the minute they wake up till the minute they go to sleep and uh, I'd be like, hey, man, sit, go read The Idiot, right? Or <laughs> some, something, something older, right? Go read the Bible. You know how many addicts read the Bible and find a lot of value in it? There's something to that that's outside of the finding religion thing. I, I, wonder, if, I wonder if alcoholics who discover religion and the bible i wonder if it's not in the actual reading itself of that thing that they find some kind of medicine right because i think that i think that human beings only have enough bandwidth for a certain amount of things at at a time and right now we have just completely gone off the deep end with you know whether you're a trump derangement syndrome uh, you know, gender person, right? <laughs> Who's just, you know, all day, every day, all you care about is looking up, uh, you know, gender issues or, or what have you, or you're like this guy and, you, you know, you feel disillusioned and you spend all day, every day looking at the, the ways that the world isn't right and isn't fair Art has all of that in a sacred, contained, temporally divorced space from all of the, from the flow of of life that I think is really important. Well, I'll uh, I'll, I'll pinpoint a, a great example of this and it's something that we've, we've talked a lot about in terms of the power of, of mythology I mean if you go to mm -hmm. the Vedic myths of Hinduism Norse mythology or Greek mythology 
you've got so much going on. And it, at one point, I was so frustrated with the news. I went out and picked up my uh, collected Jim Morrison, and I just hit this line. Turn mirrors to the wall in the house of the new dead. And uh, I, I think Jim Morrison was a great writer. Actually, a lot of people don't. But that made me think of, I mean, Greek mythology is so rich. Even some of the more obscure elements are fantastic. And that triggered my thought of Heracles or Hercules, uh, the 12 labors, his, his 12th labor. And uh, for people who don't remember, he had to go do these 12 labors as penitence for losing his mind and killing his wife and children. So it's a very powerful story about toxic max masculinity and uh, redemption. And the 12th labor, after all these amazing adventures, I mean, they're just fantastic. It's just so much craziness going on. For people who love monsters and battle and, you know, what more could you want? Well, he's assigned the task of going down to the gates of hell, the underworld, to kidnap Cerberus, the three-headed dog who guards the gates. And along the way, well, while he's there, he frees Theseus from the chair of oblivion. Theseus and his friend uh, Perithios developed this incredible scheme to kidnap Persephone, the wife of Hades. You know, now what a great idea, right? These two sort of, you know, crazy heroes, they're going to kidnap the queen of the dead, the queen of the underworld. Mm -hmm. Well, that didn't go very well. Hades sees them coming and outwits them, and they sit in the chair of oblivion. And God, isn't that a beautiful metaphor for, for today and television and watching? Chair of Oblivion? Yeah. Are you kidding no, me? It's, you couldn't be more on the nose, man. It's so, it's so wild. I mean, it's like, I mean, you can just imagine these two really intense Greek heroes who've been outwitted by the king of the dead. And they're in the Chair of Oblivion watching Papa John TV commercials forever, completely forgetting yeah. everything that they've done. Right. God damn. Well, Heracles manages so to rescue Theseus. Perotheus, yeah, he, he doesn't. He, he's still there in the underworld forever. Uh, but I just, I, when, I, when I hit that, I thought, that's just one little tidbit of this sprawling soap opera of monsters and goddesses and combat and uh, crime and punishment. And I don't know what more... What can what you couldn't ask for more, you know? The chair of oblivion. Yeah, no, I think. I mean, I think that that's a that's a great place to stop the episode proper, um, and I think we can pick it up next time because I I can't think of a better metaphor for what's going on right now. People need hobby. Like you need to be doing things. Right. You have to go out and do, do something, no matter what that thing is. You can't, this this is not life. It's. I mean, I I was. Uh, I've had a lot of moments uh, where I I don't pick up my phone and I don't look at anything strictly because I want to you know be fully present with my son. 
but you know even myself as a 35 year old man you know i deserve the same consideration as my son in that respect do you see what i mean yeah it's 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 not just a a, a parenting hack you never stop needing to be engaged with life so get out of the chair of oblivion <laughs> just stop looking at this shit and go get a fucking hobby i hope you're listening to this while you're doing something that you genuinely enjoy right if yeah. not go find that thing or your whole life is going to be nothing it's going to be worth nothing and as a parting thought, and this might be a controversial thing to say, mass shooters, you you don't hear about mass shooters who also put 22 coats of paint on a, what did you say it was, a 55? Caddy. Was it Caddy? Yeah. Yeah, it was a Caddy. That's right. You um, do not. You never hear about that. You don't hear about that, do you? So, I'll just let that sit. I think that is so true. You, you, you could bet, you could bet the house on that. You know, that that ain't never gonna happen. <laughs> that person's not. No. You know, no. It's uh, and, and that's a very very good diagnostic of. Uh, the psychological and emotional health of hobbies. You know? mm-hmm. Well, you want to hear about my... I do. Yeah, we all do. Gather around, children. Okay. Put your hands on the radio. <laughs> all right. So we have... Um, we have all these people dying mysteriously. People of the... Either Gen X or Boomer generation who who happen to have stay-at-home millennial children, right? And there's an investigative reporter who's looking into all of these deaths, and he starts noticing what these parents are dying from. Well, they're dying from African tick bite fever. They're dying from Chagas disease. They're dying of typhus. They're dying of anaplasmosis. Well, these are all dead diseases. This is very strange. So I'll stop there for a second and say that my inspiration from this was talking to a fellow parent on the phone who, <laughs> who has kids in daycare. And he caught COVID. He had COVID a few weeks ago. His whole family had COVID. His kids did fine. Him and his wife were out of commission for three or four days, and then they were they were back to it. But they all caught COVID from this daycare. So I'm thinking that we call this millennial demic. We call it pox party, right? <laughs> And the concept of it is that it's these millennials who still live at home. But the twist here is that we're not letting the parents off the hook, the helicopter parents. 
and I caught chickenpox when I was very, very young. I don't remember having chickenpox, but I caught it because my mother brought me to a friend's house who had chickenpox. So I'm envisioning this perverse cult of helicopter parents who are bringing their adult 30 year plus children to pox parties for rare infectious diseases that don't exist anymore in the urge of keeping them safe forever. Meanwhile, them being in their late 50s, early 60s, some of them probably older than that, they're catching these infectious diseases and dying from them. So our reporter in this, you know, in this movie style kind of thing would go undercover with his, you know, aging uh, Gen X or Boomer uh, editor posing as his mother to these helicopter parent pox parties where they're putting uh, infected ticks on each other <laughs> and, and having disgusting, uh, depraved sex to pass monkeypox back and forth, you know? Um, that's... My idea is pox party. I love it. And I I have to say, I um, David's been uh, reading and or checking back with uh, some William Burroughs, and I can see some of that influence there. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. is, uh, I think, I think Mr. Burroughs would, would really, really enjoy that. That's, uh, that's just wonderful. Uh, <laughs> I think you might... Good. Redeemed? Redeemed yes, from last yes, episode? yes. You, okay. you, you have, like Heracles, you have redeemed yourself. You have followed through. That's a, a very, very nice uh, finish up there. So, well done. Well, um, I'm, I'm inspired to even up the ante for next time. I'll, because uh, I think that cool. we've got some, some great things going on there. Well done. No, that was worth waiting for. Awesome. Cool. Well, I kind of, I kind of had a tip for this time. I won't say kind of. I did. I, I, well, I did have a tip, and uh, it's, it's, it's basically without repeating myself too much, because we covered it in the episode. But my tip is to actually get off of social media for a week and read a book. I know that seems really simple, and maybe not a. Uh, not as cool as Chris's tips, but open a book. Let's say the book has 500 pages. Let's let's really, you know, kind of get into this here. We're not talking about novellas or, or beach reads. Uh, let's open a book and close the book in the span of a week. And then I promise after a week, you can have your phone back and you can go back to Twitter and Facebook and whatever else. But just a week. Read a fucking book. That's my that's my tip. I think that's a perfectly enlightened, important, and essential tip. I, I don't think it's too simple, and I certainly think it's it, it's cool. And I think it's uh, it's something that uh, that is mentioned in uh, in the guidebook coming up. 
Uh, and it's not that easy to do. Let's face it, it does require some, some discipline, uh, depending on how you make your living and how you structure your social life. It's, uh, it is difficult. And, and I think that if we're honest, we're confronting uh, a kind of an addictive uh, frame there, which is always yeah. difficult to break, you know. It's so easy to get sucked back into, well, I'm just going to see what's happening, you know. And, you know. I think that's, uh, I think that's really important. And uh, I would say that, that if people really do follow through on that, at least in the short term, if you return to social media, you don't return the same way. Something has happened, you know? You bring a new level of, of, of mental structure uh, to it. And uh, I think that the, the only way to maintain uh, integrity of mind is with some disciplined reading practice, you know? Uh, you don't have to be reading Kant the whole time. You know, you can have some fun reading too. But it is important to, uh, to break from social media, to break the addiction, and to really engage with some content, some language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, some actual content, not, not fucking, not the feed, not the feed. Oh, think of it this way. What if, you know, instead of feeding, we're fasting? Which is another suggestion that figures into uh, part of the, the, the guidebook that I've been writing about. Fasting comes from so many different perspectives. Think about it. I mean, you've got spiritual practice, religious practice, uh, new age well-being practice, athletic training, military discipline. You know, a lot of great reasons for some fasting. And does that ever bring you in touch with your mind-body, you know? Uh, right. I love that Lily, John Lilly quote, you know, in case of emergency, you'll be returned to your body. And, and we need to do that, you know? We need to do that. Fasting <laughs> is perfect for that. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, well done. Do you have a, do you have a tool and a dream? Well, I, I thought for the tool, <clears throat> um, I thought I would actually just uh, use this uh, space in time to, to float something. No one has to comment on it right now, but I've been trying to, to uh, give a little bit more depth and substance to the idea of the ghost radio signal, which we have introduced in several different episodes, which is our uh, metaphor name for culture with a capital C, this sort of animate force uh, which may be likened unto one of the, the uh, physical fields of, you know, like electromagnetism uh, or something on the order of Rupert Sheldrake's idea of morphic resonance, which, uh, you know, pisses uh, hard-edged people like Richard Dawkins off because it, it sounds a little bit sort of airy-fairy. But because you and I aren't... Uh, sort of tight-assed scholars uh, like Dawkins, um, we can take more liberties. But here's a, a, just a working definition that I, I just threw out. And it's in handwriting. I haven't even typed it up yet. 
The ghost radio signal, or what we are discussing as culture with a capital C, which underlies cultures, plural and lowercase c, in the same way that language, capital L, is the underlying principle for languages, plural, lowercase l, could possibly be defined as the sum, as in the addition, and the product, as in the multiplication, of all factors that appear to separate humanity from the continuum of life on earth, but which have the potential to be decoded quite differently, which may reveal commonalities, synergies, and resonances that we may only dimly intuit or dream about, literally. Hmm. So that's my... And I guess you could say that the tool in this sense is when you have, a, I don't know, an idea that's really important to you that you're struggling to articulate, well, don't be afraid of, of stumbling around with it. Don't be afraid of having uh, big ideas. You know, a lot of people, when they hear big ideas, they're like, well, that's a big statement, you know, and they get, they're afraid they're not going to understand. They're, they think that the, the person putting forward the idea is being pretentious or, or overstating the claim, well, that could be true. But on the other hand, you also might think to yourself, well, there is a responsibility to have some big ideas, to participate in the conversation of humanity and intellect and art over time. You too have a responsibility to try to have some big ideas. What about that? You know, And if they don't work out, well, keep working on them. And if they prove outright wrong, if you could get to that point, throw them out. Harry Truman said, if those ideas don't work, we'll, we'll think of some other ones. You know, it's the important thing is the trying and getting off the chair of oblivion, getting, you know, hobby active with your hands, sharing things. Another key point of the hobby discussion is that communal sharing. The car show is a big public event you know so don't be afraid of having some big ideas and if it doesn't you know if the first level of phrasing isn't right mm. if you need to do more thinking about it well at least get it to a point where you can share with people and have some courage and faith in the sharing you know mm -hmm. excellent take us to dreamland okay well this marks a very special occasion it's a little, uh, well, I wouldn't say it's incoherent, but it's a little bit fragmentary. But you, David, are, are in it. Uh, it was mm. a very, very vivid sense, and I'll, I'll just pick apart the, the vivid aspects of it. I seem to have picked up a new uh, composite town in my dreams. Uh, mm -hmm. I can mm -hmm. kind of pick out three possible real waking life uh, sources for it, but not quite. Uh, it's not the town of Boulder City where I'm in now. It's very different and, and yet not. There are um, parts of small town Australia maybe. It's a real interesting mix, but it's beginning to take on some definition. And there was in this case uh, a, a civic event going on more of a serious sort of historical uh, kind of, of issue. 
And there was also some sort of public voting that was drawing quite a bit of uh, engagement from what appeared to us to be uh, a, a pretty decisively left-wing group. But you and I were there documenting the activities of the weekend. And we both had these really quite intense cameras, like maybe, you know, really nice Nikons or uh, even Hasselblads, you know, something really pretty intense. And at one point we had to cross this, uh, not a creek, more like a waterway because it was, it was concrete pebbled, uh, so it wasn't, you know, a natural uh, waterway. But we weren't sure how deep it was, so we were going through these elaborate dances of holding these expensive cameras over our heads and occasionally sort of missing a step and slipping a little bit deeper into the water than we wanted. And it, it was tricky to navigate that. We got to the other side and there was a railway line and it was both a vintage, like historical museum train line kind of thing, but also mm -hmm. some sort of working commuter train because it was certainly about to, to roll out. And there was some objective, something really important that we had to retrieve or find in one of the cars. And it was, the car was in the middle of the train and I couldn't quite draw a bead on if it was something we had left behind that we'd been there before, or if it was some objective like a treasure hunt. I'm inclined to think it was something, some objective that we had to achieve, like, another like one of Heracles tasks and we weren't quite sure which car and exactly what this thing looked like but the train took off and people were upset with us because we'd taken their photographs back at this meeting vote and we hadn't gotten their permission and the train takes off and we're concentrating on hanging on to our cameras which we'd managed to get across that really treacherous waterway. And the train takes off over ground that outside the rails is, is these really, you know, intense gravel. But the gravel is the brightest, most intense blue you've, you've just ever seen. And we're looking at it and going, why? Why is it so blue? What does that mean? And we're still thinking we've got to find this thing that's somewhere sort of mid-train in one of the carriages. So, what do you think? Well, first of all, I think it's really cool that I'm in the dream. I like that. I like that I've made it into your... Yes, really dream. solidly, really vividly, you know? And also, um, I think it's really interesting that you ended on the focus on the dr on the gravel and it being this different color, because that that does that feels so appropriately dreamlike for 
the center of focus to go to this thing that is definitely odd and and out of the norm but that also at the same time seems so mundane right and i wonder if there isn't some kind of connection to everything that we've been talking about in this episode the focus on this the the blue gravel seems uh extremely important to me because Because it seems like, you know, I mean, we walk on gravel all day long, but that was suddenly highlighted by a simple shift in color. And that seems significant to me. That's the way it felt to me. I mean, it wasn't like there were little miniature giraffes or strange buildings yeah, right. or dwarves it's still or mundane. something. It's still like if, if you if you in the waking world, if you if you encountered blue gravel you'd probably uh you'd remark upon it and but soon you it would just become that's the way gravel's colored now it's it's aquamarine right aquamarine gravel and you just kind of vibe with it so it it straddles that line between the slightly surreal and bizarre and the completely mundane that feels very important I think you've nailed it, you know, and uh, I mean, that does tie it all back into what we've been talking about, and it ties into uh, one of the lines from uh, the notebook of, of a possible working definition of America and American society is how quickly people will adapt completely to the bizarre, mm-hmm. how the bizarre mm-hmm. becomes mundane and accepted, you know, and suddenly you're going, yeah, aquamarine gravel, of course. Of course, right? Of course. There was this town that Rios and I visited in South Korea, and I can't remember the name of it because she was in charge of the itinerary, and I was kind of along for the ride. But it was this beautiful inlet that you know was right by the sea and the town was built up onto the hill kind of like brazilian favelas you know this this sort of upward upward building and the the entire town had bright blue roofs but not just that you know you'd be walking these short narrow twisting planks and gangways and uh, and paths and there would be these enormous gold lion statues every once in a while the purpose of which I, 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 did, I still don't know why they were there but that really felt to me uh, dreamlike in this sense that it was mundane I mean the people who lived in this town got up and cleaned fish and sold pop at 7-Eleven and all this other kind of stuff, right? I mean, they, they weren't, their day-to-day lives were not idyllic, but the place they lived was. And it it struck me as odd how quickly you got used to living in this anime cartoon village. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're just like, oh, yeah, another lion. Oh, okay. A, a, a beautiful fish mural on this wall right 
but you become very i mean that's that's kind of a, a strange thing about tourism in general is that once the initial love affair of of uh, xenophilia or or whatever you want to call it wears off it's just another place well, yeah, you know, and that is the problem. I think that's the interesting thing about dreams is it sort of we rediscover, you know, uh, a whole different level that gets lost in, uh, in the in the mundane. And and tourism is you know so, so you know it's, I think uh, Guy Debord, you know, the Society of the Spectacle, you know, defines tourism as the the luxury to see what. Uh, or the leisure to see <clears throat> what has become uh, banal, you know, and uh, uh-huh. so somehow we've any place you've been to that seems dreamlike and beautiful is also a place where people take shits. Yes, and and get hangnails <laughs> and <laughs> and worry about how they're gonna pay their electric bill because they lost, you know, too much money shooting dice the night before. In, in the alley that you uh, took a beautiful Instagram photo in. 